0: Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the full and complete transformation that You have given us by grace. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to believe that it is true. We ask in Your name, Amen. When I was a young, wet behind the ears, just out of seminary, assistant pastor in Panama City, Florida. I probably wasn't out of seminary more than a month or two. Uh, I was preaching one Sunday evening, and I can't remember what I was preaching on, but I was quite earnest as I preached. And I intended to say, we need to hate sin more. But that's not what came out of my mouth. Instead, in great earnestness, I said, We need more sin! (laughs) And uh, I didn't know that I had said that. Uh, I noticed something had happened. Uh, I heard some chuckles. I saw people's expressions change. But I had no idea what had happened. And I just kept right on preaching. And the senior pastor took great uh, joy at telling me what I had done and I was so embarrassed. Even though I had uh, boldly and earnestly proclaimed something that was actually the exact opposite of what I was trying to say, everyone understood that I had misspoken because the idea of needing more sin is the opposite of God's holy nature. Yeah, I think even the children in the congregation knew that I had made an absurd statement. Um. Yet Paul, at the end of Romans 5, he seems to make the very statement that I made. He seems to say that God added the law to make us sin. He seems to say we need more sin. Actually, that's what, exactly what Paul was saying in Romans, at the end of Romans 5. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I made this point last week, but it is so awesome not because I'm saying it, but because it's in the Scriptures. And I want to make it again. God so loved sinners that He gave the law in order to multiply and increase our sinfulness so that we would see uh, how completely without excuse we are and that we would be able to recognize our need of a righteousness that we could never produce on our own. God's love is amazing. He so loved us that He gave His one and only Son over to the cross for us. And then He increased our transgressions, which meant that the sins placed upon Him were increased. And His soul hates sin, yet. Jesus Christ wore our sins to demonstrate our need of a refuge in Him. God so completely gives of Himself in our salvation, it does seem at times as if He loves us more than He loves Himself or more than He loves His Son because He gave His Son over to the cross that we might be saved increased our sins that were then accounted to the Lord Jesus Christ that He paid for on the cross so that we would see our need of His righteousness and flee to Him. And it was no small matter for God to increase our transgressions. But our situation is so dire that God needed to take drastic measures to illustrate just how bad our situation really is. We are not just sinners that make serious and stupid mistakes. We are dead in our sins. We are not just spiritually sick. We are spiritually dead. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden and told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he told Adam that on the day that they eat, they ate from the, fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that they would surely die. And Adam certainly did die on the day that he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He very much died spiritually, even though he continued to live physically for many more years before he physically died. So then, Adam died spiritually. What does spiritual death look like? Well, we have a picture of it in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. Spiritual death means that your nature... The very core of your being is evil. An inclination, as he talks about inclinations here, an inclination is the thought that precedes the thought. It's the deep desire that brings forth the thought. It's the seed from which the thought springs forth. So when, he, when God says that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time, it means that the people described in Genesis 6 verse 5 only desired evil. There was never any room for a God-honoring thought. If every inclination, if every thought that precedes the thought was only evil all the time, when was there time for a good or a God-honoring thought. Never. Now, it doesn't mean that they were as evil as they could possibly be. Parents loved and cared for their children. Neighbors, I'm sure, uh, back before the flood, were still neighborly. Society functioned as people helped and served each other. People did good things, but they did them out of self-interest. They did not do it To honor and serve the Lord. And that's evil. Remember Romans chapter 1? But that's not to say that they did not do evil as well before the flood. They did a lot of evil. Society before the flood was very brutal, very wicked. But I'm simply wanting to say, point out that they were not as wicked as they possibly could have been. God sent the flood to demonstrate to the future generations just how devastating spiritual death is for us. Spiritual death and the evil inclinations and desires that sprout forth in evil thinking and evil actions. It brings forth the judgment of God. The flood happened to that generation of people to remind us to teach us, to illustrate for us that we as spiritually dead people just like them are deserving of the torrent and flood of God's judgment. The flood did nothing to change human nature. We're still spiritually dead after the flood. Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 1-3, through three, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed uh, the ways of this world um, and followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, we're spiritually dead. That doesn't mean that we're as wicked as we possibly can be, but it means, as it says here in Ephesians 2, that we follow the ways of this world. That we follow the ways of Satan. That we... Can properly be called, as Paul does, the sons of disobedience. And we can properly be uh, denoted by nature as being children of wrath. See, there's no difference between humanity now and humanity before the flood in terms of our nature. Every inclination of the thoughts of of every heart outside of Jesus Christ, every inclination of the thoughts of the heart of present humanity is only evil continually. Outside of Christ, our nature is evil. Outside of Christ, we are by nature children of wrath. In Romans 5.21, Paul says that sin reigned in death. What type of person reigns? Who do you think of when you think of a person ruling or reigning? Well, you think of a king. Paul is saying that sin reigned in spiritually dead hearts. If you're not a Christian, then sin is your master. It's your king. You surely love other people in your life. And you do good things as a citizen of our society, but God is not your master or your king. Sin is your master. And you've never done anything with a selfless desire to please God. Your efforts at trying to please God come with strings attached. You need to have your whole nature overhauled, transformed. You need to have a new heart that delights to love and please God. Now at this point, you might be expecting me then to give a gospel call something like this as preachers or are, uh, are want to do from time to time and say, you need to give your heart to Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Because what would Jesus want with a spiritually dead heart? With a heart that hates Him? A heart that rebels against Him? A heart that is continually rebellious to Him? What would Jesus want with that kind of heart? See, we think when we're giving our hearts to Jesus, we're giving Him the best thing we have. No, we're giving Him the worst thing we have. not give your heart to Jesus unless you're giving it to Him so that He can kill it and give you a new one. A spiritually regenerated heart. And I've got some good news for you. The message of Romans 6 is that God did indeed kill our spiritually dead hearts in Christ and gave us new hearts in Christ. When we trusted in Christ, our hearts were united to Him. So that everything Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago becomes ours. In verse 3, it says that we were baptized into Christ. Baptism is so much more than a picture of our sins being washed away. It's also a picture of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Jesus Christ. Uniting us to all His benefits. This is what Paul meant uh, Paul means in verse 5 when he says that we have been united with Christ in His death. It's like we have been, this is us, this is Christ. We have been placed into Him. We have been united to Him. It's not our grip on Him, it's His hold on us. And so, you are united To Christ. You were in union with Him. Everything that He did on the cross becomes yours because of Him and because of your union with Him. You were justified because, why? Well, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and you're in Him. You were adopted as a child of the living God. Why? Because Christ is the Son of God and you are in Him. Because He's the Son, you're in Him. You're now a dearly loved, adopted child of God. You are now holy. Why? Because Christ is holy and you've been placed into Him. You you can now have confidence that you will continue as a Christian. Why? Because you're in Christ. And the Bible says that nothing under heaven or earth will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every moment of your life, you are united to Jesus. Or as John 15 says, um, He is the true vine. You're connected to Him as the branch. You receive your life. You receive your spiritual nourishment. You receive your entire transformation. The spiritual fruit you bear is because of Christ and your union with Him. Everything in the Christian life flows out of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul wants you to understand that you are in Christ. And so he repeats it over and over and over. Verse 3, he says, You have been baptized into Christ's death. Verse 4, he says, you have been buried with Him. In verse 5, he says, uh, that you have been united with Him in His death and you have also been united with Him in His resurrection. In verse 6, he says, you have been crucified with Christ. In verse 8, he says, you have died with Christ. So he either says you've been united to Him or you are with Him or you are in Him Over and over and over again. I think it's clear. A Christian is one who is united to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we receive all of Christ's benefits because of our union with Him. What are you to do? You rest in Him. The rest that you have is a restless resting. But it's a rest, first of all. Now the question is, what does it mean in verse 2 when Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Just to let you know what's happening here. um uh, at the end of Romans 5, he says, God has increased our transgressions so that, uh, we might be able to see God's grace that more clearly. Where, uh, transgressions increased, so God's grace increased. And so then this, uh, this protagonist or antagonist, you remember, that keeps popping up? Well, uh, the antagonist pops up here in verse 1. Well, what shall we say then, Paul? if God gave us the law to increase our sin, to increase the magnification of God's grace, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see what the antagonist is saying here? How Paul's pushing forward his argument. They're thinking that maybe if God is so interested in increasing His grace, maybe we should go and sin more. Isn't that a temptation for Christians? Isn't that a temptation that has uh, come before your heart many different times? Jesus died for my sins. He died for my past sins, my present sins, my future sins. That means I can sin and God won't mind. He's already forgiven it, right? Paul says in the Greek "meganoita." It's about as strong a uh, a, a, a phrase as as uh, can be uttered, and is translated in the English "by no means," with several exclamation points uh, after it. Paul says, "No, we are not to continue sinning." that grace may increase. Rather, because of our union with Christ, we have died to sin. Therefore, we can no longer live in it. And so this question is, what does it mean that you have died to sin? I mentioned uh, last week in passing that um, there was an aorist verb. Aorist means simple past. At one point in time, you died. In other words, uh, you're not in the process right now as a Christian of dying to sin. No, you have died, past tense, to sin. So it's not saying here that you ought to be dead to sin, as if it's an exhortation. No, he's saying you died to sin in Christ. Now then there are some who say, well, because we've died to sin, that means we no longer will sin again, Wesleyan perfectionism. No, that's not what it means at all. Some people believe that it means, well, we've died to sin, um, but not all the way. My parents are here this morning and uh, I'm sure m- many of you know what kudzu is. My parents are intimately acquainted with it as they have been battling kudzu, uh, taking over the 12 acres of our my dad's property. And um, over the years, you know, you can kill it and then it keeps coming back. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that you've died to it, but it might grow back. He's saying, you have died to sin, past tense, finished. You died at one point in time to sin. Or when? Well, this is the mysterious union of you with Jesus Christ. You were, if you were in Christ now, you were with Christ, on the cross 2,000 years ago. I don't understand it. God is timeless. He's infinite. Jesus Christ on the cross purchased not only us for God, He also purchased our new hearts. He purchased our death to sin on the cross. And when you became a Christian, what happened was that new heart that Christ purchased on the cross became yours. It was implanted uh, in your soul. Your old heart was crucified. It was killed at that moment, and you um, you became a new creature in Christ. In other words, what you died to was to dead living. You died to the reign of sin. Before you came to Christ, sin was your master. It was your king. It led you around by the nose. You were unable and unwilling to obey God. Or, better said, you were so willingly rebellious to God that you were unable to obey Him. But when you came to Christ, your old heart was crucified. With Christ, you died with Christ. what is this what does this mean? What is the nature of a regenerated heart? It's more than you um, died to the inability and unwillingness. Uh, when you became a Christian, when you received the new heart, it's something positive. It's, it's a, a new heart was implanted in you. You have new affections. You have new interests. You have a new love. You have a new direction. You're a new person. J.I. Packer says that when a person Uh, comes to Christ and they receive a new heart, a deep, sustained desire that that you have a deep, sustained desire to know God, to draw near to God, to seek God, to find God, to love God, to honor God, to serve God, and to please God. Uh, My parents uh, know Chris Hendry. He was uh, a young man that I led to Christ while I was still in college. And... uh, the uh, as we were talking, he, he um, came to Christ right in front of me. And he came mid sentence. He was saying, "You mean to tell me that uh, that a, a person in the jungles who never gets to hear the gospel that they're going to hell?" And uh, the pastor who discipled me said, "Yes, that's right." He said, "But you're getting the privilege of hearing the gospel." He said, you mean to tell me that God would treat me differently? That God would would give me the opportunity to hear the Gospel and He wouldn't give somebody else the, the opportunity? You mean to tell me God would love me that much to give me the opportunity when I've had the opportunity and I have rejected it? You mean to tell me God would love me so much and just immediately he came to Christ. And so he's yelling in, in the pastor's home, God loves me! God loves me! In the, the twinkle of an eye, he went from spiritual death where he hated God. In, in mid-sentence, hating God to loving God and desiring to honor Him in every way. That's regeneration. That's what happens when a new heart... Now, you might not be able to see it happen that quickly. My uh, conversion was over a process of time of me reading the Scriptures. But when I came to Christ, all of a sudden, my entire outlook on life changed. When you came to Christ, your whole outlook on life changed. It wasn't because you're a smart person. It was because of the work of Christ in you. This is, These are areas to your simple past, but they're also in the passive tense. It's not something you did. You were passive. Christ did it in you. You believed, certainly, but it was because Christ gave you a new heart that loves Him and longed to trust in Him. What are some of the byproducts of a new heart? If you have a new heart, what does that look like? Well, it means that um, you'll start producing spiritual fruit because you'll want to please God. It means that you'll also start to struggle with sin. Non Christians don't really struggle with sin. But when you have a new heart in Christ, it breaks your heart when you sin. It produces joy in obedience. Whereas obedience to God, that just seems like such a drag. But when you become a Christian, that is the overwhelming desire and delight of your life. The new heart craves God. It craves obedience to Him. Just like a train on the tracks. That's this environment and it skips right along. A new heart In God's Word, delights. What if you are um, not delighting in God? What does that mean, maybe? Does it mean that you're not a Christian? It might mean that. What does it mean to... Um, to have a new heart. Well, it means that sin will grieve you. It will repulse you. Also, it means that you'll start making progress in obedience. It might be slow obedience. There certainly will be sins that you struggle with. There certainly can be habits that are very difficult to break. But if you're making no progress, or if you're not struggling with sin, you really need to ask yourself, am I a Christian at all? Christians no longer practice sin habitually, First John tells us. Christians no longer practice sin without it having a diminishing effect in their life. Sin begins to be less. God's grace begins to grow more and more. Why is that? Because it's unnatural for you to live any other way. You have a new heart that loves God. You have a new heart that's being ruled by God. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer, Paul says? Your citizenship is in heaven. How can you live like hell? You were raised with Christ. How can you live like one who's following the devil? You love holiness. Why would you love an unholy life? You can't do it as a Christian. You'll be miserable if you're not pursuing holiness. Test yourselves. It's unnatural unnatural for a cat to bark or a dog to meow. It's not in their nature. You've got a new nature now in Christ. As a Christian, as one who has a new heart, it will be your joy to abide in Christ. And He will provide victory even if it seems slow. It will be victory all the same. Isaac Watts captured this um, process or rather this this uh, regeneration in a poem. He said helpless guilty nature lies unconscious of its load, the heart unchanged can never rise to happiness in God. The will perverse, the passions blind, in paths of ruin stray. Reason debased can never find the safe, the narrow way. Cannot beneath the power divine, the stubborn will subdue. Tis Thine, Almighty Savior Thine, to change the heart anew. Oh, change these wretched hearts of ours and give them life divine. Then and only then shall our passions and our powers, Almighty Lord, be Thine. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that You would encourage uh, those who are downcast because of their sin that are Weeping daily because they cannot uh, overcome different sins in their life. Lord, encourage them that their weeping over their sin is a mark of Your grace at work in their life. God, for those who are um, fighting the good fight and are tempted um, to shrink back, are tempted to act like the world, teach them that they have a new heart and that they are to reckon themselves, to count themselves, to believe themselves, to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those who are not um, seeking to love You but are just putting on airs, putting on uh, fakery, to, um, to, to um, have everybody around them think that they are Christians. Lord, I pray You would break them and bring them to Yourself. Lord, I ask that You would, by Your grace, um, fill us and help us to believe the facts of the Gospel and to live by them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.